Hello, and welcome to episode 99 of our podcast at Human Restoration Project. My name is Chris McNutt, and I'm a high school digital media educator from Ohio, joined by Nick Covington, a social studies teacher from Iowa. Before we get started, I want to let you know that this is brought to you by our supporters, three of whom are Monty Syrie, Sarah Passur, and Travis Gretauzanel. Thank you for your ongoing support. You can learn more about the Human Restoration Project on our website, humanrestorationproject.org, or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. In this podcast, Nick and I are continuing our foray into random topics of progressive education. Today's episode centers cognitive science, research movements, and quote-unquote studies of the brain. Within, we'll be talking about what's currently going on at HRP, articles and books that Nick and I have been reading recently, what's going on in our classrooms, a Q&A from listeners via Twitter, and then a pop quiz for who stays alive. How are you, Nick? What's going on? I'm I'm coming to you from a from a hotel room in Lincoln, Nebraska, so that's kind of fun. Um, you know, kind of enjoying the the daylight savings hour. I came in last night to come to a come to a concert happening downtown, and then yeah, we'll record the podcast, and then I'll I'll head back home uh, later today. So we'll start off by talking about uh, what's currently going on at Human Restoration Project. We've been relatively quiet on the uh, I guess like the constituent end. People haven't been seeing maybe as many writings or as many podcasts coming up, but that's because behind the scenes, we've been working on a lot of grant stuff and a lot of uh, kind of cool course development stuff. I don't know how much we can share based off that partnership that you've been developing, Nick. We've been developing out a course for ungrading that may or may not award graduate credit, and that might turn into more progressive classes uh, based around learning different systems and how you can change them in your class and get university credit for it. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, um, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so the the partnership hopefully will be through um, the Iowa State Education Association, their ISEA Academy, which you know traditionally just helps to offer uh, continuing education credits. Um, sometimes you can you can take those for grad credit as well. Uh, so we're going to put together a syllabus for an ungrading course, and hopefully then teachers can sign up for that. Uh, I think probably a requirement is that you you might have to be an Iowa resident to do that, but that's just kind of where um, our connections lie. But if we get this thing going, it could be you know something that uh, that we can we can um, pitch elsewhere and hopefully spread that spread the word. Right. It's coupled with two other pretty major things that are going on. One is we are attempting uh, to finalize a pretty serious grant that could help us develop coursework. Uh, for classrooms, for students to engage in this work. A lot of our work so far has been very teacher-centric in the sense that we're still centering students, but the materials are aimed at educators. This grant would have us creating materials for students that educators could then use. Um, And it also uh, dictates some of our research into progressive education. And kind of with that coupled, Human Restoration Project was recently shortlisted uh, for the QS Reimagined Education Conference uh, via Wharton. Yeah. Uh, university and that's uh that's pretty cool it's the top 12 percent of applicants i can't remember off the top of my head i want to say it was 1200 people applied and we're in the top 12 percent yep um so it's pretty darn cool and uh, you'll be seeing something out of that in likely the next month or so yeah big things on the horizon a lot of things going on just not a lot to show for it so far um, <laughs> yeah not not on the public yeah. facing end right because you know, given the fact that we are full-time classroom teachers, uh, I mean, our entire, you know, staff has other, other, other things that we do full-time. 
you know, the time that we put in behind the scenes then kind of takes away from the, the public facing stuff. So one thing that we are releasing that you can check out is via 100daysofconversations.org. Go there. You can see the insights that are coming out of it. I believe since this last podcast, we released the equity conversation. It's really cool. Not only did it take a ton of time and analysis and work from our partners, you'll just be able to find a host of different resources, organizations, concepts to explore with students about what equity means in education and what that means going forward. And there will be the same concept coming forward here with about seven other insights. There's a lot of work going on there. Uh, Be sure to check that out. There it is. Transition. Got to get a better transition sound. That's that's the transition. It's a spaceship whoosh by. We're going to talk about some articles that we're reading. I have a feeling this might jump into that cog size stuff. Maybe. I think it will. Yeah. All right. Do you want to start? Or you want me to start? Oh man, I can start now. I'll say it's it's you know it's early on a Sunday morning, so so my brain is a little <laughs> bit a little bit rattled by this. But um, but the thing that I wanted to bring to the table here was. Um, but maybe I'll, I'll, again, since I'm addicted to context, I'll kind of share the context for this. But um, I went to uh, two, I guess, allies of, of mine in this battle of, uh, in this trivia battle that we're going to fight here. Uh, so I went to Trevor Alio and I went to Michael Weingarth. Uh, you can find him at Learning Pillars, uh, I think, on Twitter. But I went to those guys and I said, hey, you know, I, Chris and I are going to have another episode coming up. And um, it's going to be about cognitive science. It's going to be about kind of research ed. And I wanted them to maybe pull some stuff that I could use to stump you in the trivia. And as we were talking about that, I mean, they threw numerous resources at me that uh, that I had not been made aware of that I dove in um, headfirst into. And actually, um, it could be the case even that that partnership kind of turns into um, something kind of fun in terms of a future podcast series that that we had talked about a little bit, and you know we're all we're all just busy folks, so something to look out there in the future. But um, they turned me on to this podcast, Rethinking uh, Education, and it's a podcast from oh my gosh, who is the who's the guy? <laughs> I know who the guest is, but I, okay, the podcast is called Rethinking Education. I don't remember who hosts it because it doesn't list it on the. On the uh, on the episodes page, but Mr. Um, Education, yes, it's with it's it's with Doctor Education actually. Oh, uh, he's got he's got a PhD. Fancy. Yeah, uh, uh, but it's with Mary Helen Imordino Yang, and um, apparently this is a name that everybody needs to be familiar with in the realm of cognitive science because um, her work, not just as a uh, like a neuroscientist, but she she also I kind of get the vibe that she is also. Um, writing for more popular audiences as well. So, so obviously like a serious academic, but just listening to her um, speak and then the, the, the work that she has written and in the books that she has published, um, also like wanting to bring that message to a broader audience other than just academic journals, right? Um, and that's just apparent in the way that she speaks about education. But one of the things that has been really, um, I don't know, difficult about cognitive science and, and progressive education and kind of the way that those things have seemingly been at odds with each other is that cognitive science has kind of been used as a, as a, as a cudgel almost to replicate the tools of the, 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 the laboratory classroom um, in schools. So, right, trying to control for various variables in order to um, control for outcomes that then we can measure and say that, you know, kids have improved their learning on X, Y, and Z thing. Now, the more variables that you add into that, or if you start to talk about more qualitative ways that kids might think or t- talk about their learning, 
um, it's going to really confound the correlation between inputs and outputs, right? right. But she's trying to bring meaning um, and feeling back into uh, back into education and really talk about how the way that kids feel about their learning um, is, you know, as important or maybe more important than you know the 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 random bits of memorization that that they would otherwise um, just come out of that. So, so for example, right, the, the, the popular phrase for the last decade or so has been facts don't care about your feelings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it turns out that they, facts really do care about your feelings. And she's done a lot of work that actually shows that the way that kids feel um, about what they're learning and the stories that they tell themselves about these um, can glean a lot, not just about um, how kids are learning, but also um, how the, kind of their trajectory for um, for what they will be in the future as well. So, um, yeah, I would just really recommend that podcast uh, for Rethinking Education. It actually came out on October 15th, 2021. Uh, Mary Helen Imardino Yang on the Neurobiological Case for Progressive Education. So it really is about um, bringing cognitive science to bear on the kinds of things that we've been talking about from a, from a humane lens. And I'll, okay. I'll, I'll just read a couple of different quotes that I pulled out of that Um, pulled out of that thing. So she says, um, for example, here's a really great one. She says, what actually allows us to predict the growth, the physical growth and the change in function of teenagers' brains across years and into adulthood, which in turn predicts their young adult happiness, how productive they are, how well they do in school, how much they like their close relationships, how coherent their identity is, how purposeful they feel their life is. Really important stuff about people's outcomes. What predicts that is not what they know, it's how they think. It's the dispositions they bring to the world as they engage with complex problems with open-ended uh, with open-ended problems without one answer. Um, so again, she's bringing in that uh, that gray zone, that purpose finding, that meaning making um, into what has usually been a pretty sterile, um, you know, uh, what retrieval practice and interleaving and all of those other kinds of more traditional practices that justify traditional classrooms and saying no, maybe. The, the, the difficult, complex stuff that students do is more important for their future than the what it is that they can remember. Yeah, it, it seemingly does not connect to a lot of the conversations that you tend to hear from cog-sci people, cognitive right. science people, which if you're not familiar, cognitive science people tend to focus on this back-to-basics, uh, fact-based approach where kids do a lot of recall based a cognitive load theory. Uh, it's, it's all essentially based off of studies that have happened in labs where students have increased test scores based off of behaviorist style, uh, like positive and sometimes even negative reinforcement metrics of just repeating the exact same thing over and over. However, in practice, in a classroom, those types of techniques don't really work. And they also ignore all of the other researchers in this field. Like I think of um, Kendall Cottenbronk, William Damon, what's the, uh, Susan Engel, who are doing the exact same line of work and counteracting, saying like, hey, yes, this stuff increases test scores in a lab setting, but having a classroom that actually looked and felt like this would be someplace that you would never want to send your kids to because it would be sterile and boring and brutal. And there's a lot more that goes into a classroom beyond just memorizing a bunch of facts. It's, it's, a, it's a community space, uh, and it means a lot more than that. And th- this type of work showcases that the research 
is not all on one side. There is a plethora of research from a bunch of different people talking about a bunch of different things from different perspectives. Yeah, what I think is so interesting is, and, and I joked about uh, Trevor and Michael about this, but I was like, you know, it's taking uh, neuroscience. Now we're coming full circle into, you know, finding the cognitive benefits of progressive practices that, you know, have been been written about since the time of, uh, you know, John Dewey um, up through the 1960s. The history of that that we always talk to and, and that we always connect to. But but I, I think a lot back about Frank Smith's um, book of learning and forgetting. And I'll talk about this book till the end of time. Um, because he actually kind of breaks down the history of learning science, quote unquote, back to um, this dude Ebbinghaus and how he was able to kind of study the the, the learning curve, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, the more that you practice uh, these things, then then the more likely that you're able to learn them, and then the degrading of that uh, of that memory over time with the forgetting curve. But this had happened um, back in the the early 1900s with lists of nonsense words. So, you know, they were words like zug and um, just things that nobody would able to to remember because it was really important for uh, for the study for it to be not uh, out of context, right, to not have any meaning. Otherwise, you'd be studying people's background knowledge and, you know, their biases, et cetera. So, So Frank Smith says about this, he says, the laws of learning state that learning follows this predictable and replicable course only when nonsense is involved, when there is no interest or comprehension. If there is interest in comprehension, then learning is inevitable and effortless. And he even says then, um, you know, if you want to study how people learn without the involvement of interest and past experience, study how they learn nonsense. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for us, the criticism of, um, you know, cognitive science or maybe hashtag cog sci and the way that it's wielded um, in, in education and pedagogy is through that lens, right? Well, why would you want to bring practices that have people studying nonsense in the laboratory? Of, of what use is that to, um, you know, harness the meaningful experiences of the students that we have in our classroom in front of us? Um, and so that's where we've been resistant to those ideas. But, right, if we can um, get the, get kind of the neuroscience, the cognitive science uh, approach to that, then maybe that can help bolster, you know, and kind of strengthen our case, um, not just for why those practices are more humane, which, you know, we know that they are, or um, that they um, improve students' experiences of school or mental health, et cetera. But, you know, hey, here's actually the research that says that they learn better. Um, and for some people, that's that's really important too, you know? Yeah. And I think it connects too to uh, the book that I've been reading, which is Teaching Machines, uh, I, I finally started teaching machines by Audrey Waters, which I feel like I'm, I'm kind of behind the, the curve there. That came out in August and it's been sitting literally on my shelf since then and hasn't moved. There was actual dust on it. Uh, and I, I've really wanted to read it, but I, if you can see my desk right now, there are at least 30 books on this desk. Mm. They're just randomly stacked with, but yeah, uh, Audrey Waters, if, I mean, if folks aren't familiar, she's pretty much spent the majority of her writing focused on ed tech and the quote unquote, like personalized education movement and and kind of uh, debunking a lot of the history and promise behind those um, endeavors. So teaching machines is about the history of personalized learning. I'm not through it yet. I'm about halfway through. And it traces essentially Khan Academy, uh, which was promised by the, the Gates Foundation to be this thing that was going to revolutionize education because kids could just work at their own pace and everybody would be kind of doing their own thing. And kids would just like watch Khan Academy videos all day. Uh, and traces that back to uh, uh, Sidney Pressey, 
which is like mid 1920s, he invented the first teaching machine, which kind of looks like a cash machine, like a, a thing that like you would check people out with. It's like this weird like receipt machine where you plug in certain slots and like it will tell you the right or wrong answer based on how you manipulate the slots and how that's all rooted back with like like the Thorndike Dewey argument. Like Thorndike really wanted there to be this like machine that could automatically tell a student if they were right or wrong. And mm. Dewey was all talking about like, no, it should be experiential learning and draw upon student experience. And Waters says rightly so that, you know, Thorndike won this argument because we are still using Thorndike's uh, resources in most classrooms across the United States. Mm. This this focus on standardization, a focus on kind of everyone doing the exact same thing at the exact same time, a focus on just kind of like this very right and wrong based approach to education as opposed to experiential creative endeavors. The problem is, is that this personalized quote unquote solution to education, which uh, also was adopted by like B.F. Skinner uh, in the 50s and 60s, a little bit earlier, right. is all really gross and behaviorist and controlling. It's not really personalized. It's more like, hey, we're going to force all these kids to sit in a room and they're all going to go through their times tables or whatever. They're going to memorize it and then they're going to walk out and they're going to be brilliant. All of this to say, what I did end up actually reading was in the first chapter of Teaching Machines, she mentions uh, the fact that B.F. Skinner, the founder of behaviorism, wrote a utopian sci-fi book called Walden 2, which is so fringe. And I was like, B.F. Skinner, the guy that made the Skinner box that trained animals to like react and have positive behaviorist approaches that uh, right. like teach like a champion uses. That guy wrote a utopian book. So I read Walden 2. Uh, it is about, I don't know, like 150 pages in very large type font. It's, a, it's available on archive.org because it was written, <laughs> I, I want to say like late 40s, early 50s. I can say that it reads like bad pulp. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of like pulp sci-fi. And it's, it's terribly written. Here's the plot, all right? So the <laughs> plot is that the main character is like living in this, I guess, poor kind of decrepit society and him and his friends are so sad because society just sucks in general. And he reconnects with one of his old college friends named Frazier, who has started this society called Walden 2, based off of like Thoreau, as like where that name comes from. Right. So they go and visit Fraser at Walden 2, and Fraser spends the next literally 150 pages just describing how Walden 2 is set up. There's no plot. Like, this is no, like, hero's journey. This is no, like, it, it's like someone read Brave New World and didn't get the fact that it was a dystopia. Oh, like, that's no. that's what it reads like. Like, the whole thing is like, okay, yeah, but, like, when are, like, they, like, going to figure out that this is all a farce and it's all bad? No, they never do. It's just, like, Walden 2 is great. And it, it's very funny because the entirety of Walden 2 is based off of behaviorism. The idea is that like little young kids from birth are raised in this very controlled environment where they are rewarded for doing small repetitious tasks over and over again well. And as a result, as they grow older, they are all very personalized, autonomous human beings that don't need anyone to control them because their entire lives they've been like predisposed to just doing the things that they know how to do and they just do those things. 
uh, like without question. Um, and it's meant to be like this, like anarchist society where people just like live like on their own. But the, the irony of it is that this dude Fraser turns out to control everything. Like he develops the economic systems. He develops how people live. He develops every single little thing, which is, it's like a dictatorship or like fascism or like some kind of like uh, like ultra authoritarian state. Because what happens if you don't listen to the behaviorist teachings? Like that's never brought up. So it's seriously like like an Orwellian type society, as if someone wrote it with missing the point of what George Orwell was trying to talk about. But um, but but think about it, right? Like the emphasis on laboratory controls. If we think this is the the best way to create human beings. Um, is to right have them push levers and get a get get the reward or whatever is to incentivize everything else and and uh, you know basically treat human beings like uh, like Pavlov's dog. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then yeah, like that that naturally leads to controlled environments and controlled situations where people aren't thinking about um, about uh, what it is that they want to do because if they have to think about what it is they want to do, they might not do it in the best way possible. Okay. Um, but that's what we've modeled our classrooms over, isn't it? So you could say that this, uh, the, the Walden two is basically the, uh, it's like the precursor to teach like a champion mm-hmm. <laughs> writ large for society. You know, um, it's just that teach like a champion and, and it's kind of ilk is, is that brought into the classroom to be used. It's, it's the Skinner box, uh, for kids, you know? Yeah. And wow. I think that the best way to, to see this from a BF Skinner standpoint is, B.F. Skinner, early in his career, and Waters mentions this in the book, one of his first inventions was this lab-style crib for babies, and he raised his own kid like this. So he built ostensibly like a hamster cage, so like this like cage that a baby would rest in that was heated, so it like felt like you were like being held or like a, like a blanket was on you. And the idea was the baby could hang out inside this box without a blanket, without anything that could like potentially hurt them. They literally just sat inside the box with their diaper on. That's it. And then the only thing the parent had to do was at designated times throughout the day, like spend time with their child. And the idea was you would get rid of all the crappy stuff you had to do, like monitor, like their food habits or uh, keep them warm, etc. <laughs> like things that you do to like raise a child. So this is the guy that came up with behaviorist tendencies that thinks that that's normal and not weird and not super creepy and well, it, like, child abuse, quite frankly, and child you know? abuse and very brave. Like that's actually a scene from brave new world. <laughs> like he, he actually talks about in Walden too, about like the community raising children and, like getting rid of like a familial like parent style relationship, which is the plot of Brave New World on how they raise their children. Right. Um, this yeah. this has me thinking all kinds of. I, I, we should just abolish you know like Skinnerian uh, approaches in education entirely. Like it, like what? Oh my god, I'm I'm flabbergasted. Well, the whole that, thing was that he was horrifying. discredited. Like there was like a right. whole thing where a bunch of different researchers came in and said, "Yo, this guy's." Like nuts. Like the stuff that he's talking about is not accurate. But then in the last, I don't know, maybe since like the 80s, 90s, when behaviorist approaches became more and more common, it's not uncommon at all to find Skinner as a reference point 
for folks that are working in classrooms. And a lot of professional development is based around his ideas, especially Teach Like a Champion, which I may or may not get to later. My God, think I think back to the last episode we recorded, right? We were talking about Carl Brigham and IQ tests and ACTs and all those kinds of things. Think about these guys that we've that we've modeled our education systems around, you know, and like eugenicists and, and wackos and people who just had the most corrupted vision for uh, human behaviors and interactions. Like, ha- how have we not uh, uh, figured out a better way that doesn't involve uh, connecting these 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 weirdos and their outdated notions of of human interaction from uh, from education systems? It, it's an insane thing. Yeah, it, it actually is. It, it is one of, I encourage anyone to check out that book. Do not read Walden 2. It's entirely a waste of your time. I just <laughs> thought it was fascinating. Let's then shift into, let's talk about what we're doing in our, oh wait, I almost forgot here. Uh, it sounded like that book share out hit the mark. Those are laser beams hitting the mark. Oh, doesn't stop. All right, there we go. Sounds like an old, if you've ever had an old like amplifier that had a reverb module built into it, mm-hmm. it's got that spring, and that's what yep. that spring sounds like when you when you twang it. Well, it's a laser. Yeah. I, All I, right. I what, let's talk about uh, what we're doing in our classrooms. So yeah, I, I got got kind of a cool idea. Um, you know, AP Euro is such a content heavy course. Um, and there's just, there's, there's so much that you got to try and, and do. And, and there, there's part of me that, that just entirely rebels against that idea, but at the same time, wanting kids to be able to be successful on an AP test that they're going to pay 94 bucks for and, and know how the stakes are high for college costs, which we don't seem to, to want to do anything about from a policy level. So, um, you know, I, I always struggle with how to teach like this era of absolutism, because, I mean, God, it's a thing that, that I still struggle with. Um, I told my, my students that I took an English history class in college. It was the worst class that I, that I ever took. I didn't learn a single thing about it. I learned more from Monty Python than I learned from my English history class. Um, and so I, I was really open with my kids about like, hey, this is a tough thing to teach. There's just a lot of, uh, of names, of, of, of families and, um, you know, accomplishments. Um, and I did a new thing where... I, I was experimenting with those tier lists. You know, you've seen them on YouTube mm, where right. they'll be like, let's rank all of the uh, Led Zeppelin albums, uh, like S, A, B, C, D tier or whatever. Um, and I, I had done with my eighth hour econ class a couple times, just when we had some time at the end of class, we did, you know, um, Pop-Tarts one day, we did Halloween candy um, another day. And it's just always kind of like a, a good, uh, I don't know, a, a good experience, um, good kind of classroom culture building thing. Uh, and and kids, are, kids are clamoring for it. Whenever we have time now at the end of class, they're like, come and just do a tier list. Um, and so I made a tier list for absolutist rulers and kind of I just had them set up. Uh, I picked 11 absolutist rulers, you know, that, that would be from their textbook section or whatever. And uh, we looked at the criteria for absolutists and basically tur- I turned them loose just to just to do some research using the resources that we had uh, to try and figure out, you know, who, and depending on how they answered it, um, who was the best ruler, because sometimes they said the people who were the most absolutist were the worst rulers, um, or who was the most absolutist, you know, so they put like Ivan the Terrible is like S tier, you know, Louis the Fourteenth <laughs> is like S tier, um, but then the they'd Terrible be like, oh, S tier. Yeah, but they'd be yeah. like, oh, the, I wouldn't want to live under these things. It's like, okay, so maybe there's an inverse relationship to that. But that's what I'm getting at here is um, it's the first time I'd ever done anything you know, like that. I don't know, call it project-based, call it whatever. But 
Um, the thing that was so cool about it was hearing the conversations and kind of the pre-work that went into that because I had students record the, the, the video um, of their tier lists. So they had to do a lot of uh, preparation um, and kind of work going into that and just the debates that they had um, in their in their groups as, as they were doing it. And then as they were recording their videos too, um, really justified the whole thing to me because then again, I think, okay, if they're talking through and they're going through their evaluation and they're discussing you know, that evidence and kind of debating, uh, uh, debating who should go where on that, then that to me shows that they're, you know, making the connections and that they're doing the learning. Um, so I kind of just turned it over to them for a week to do that research, um, and to create those, those tier lists. Um, and I think overall it was, it was a super successful way to teach something that, um, historically for me has been, uh, kind of a slog, um, and kind of dull for kids, um, but I think it's something I'll definitely do in the future. Yeah, I know you had shared out doing tier lists just for fun, you know, before with those Pop-Tarts. And I did the same yeah. thing with my class just for fun one day because I found if, if there was something that was lost in the last couple of years, it's maybe communication. I just feel like the kids just don't talk to each other as much as they used to. Or if they yeah. do, they only talk to their little tiny closed friend group. And I was trying to figure out ways, well, how can I get these kids laughing and talking with each other about silly things? Uh, so we did tier lists for, for Halloween. Uh, we did like candy and, and yeah. pop tier list, that kind of stuff, which Sour Patch Kids won every single time. He heavy agree, by the way. That is an S tier candy. Uh, by far my favorite. So Swedish, Swedish fish for me. Wow. Um, it, it was really funny when I when I was going through, because some kids didn't know what tier lists were when I when mm -hmm. I did introduce the AP Euro activity. So I just pulled up the Halloween candy list and I started ranking them how I would rank them. Oh my God. You... It, there was going to be like a riot. They were going oh, to yeah. carry me out it's of the serious. room because, you know, yeah, like my 35 year old tastes do not match the tastes of, uh, you know, today's um, uh, 15 and 16 year olds. So they'd be like, oh, Covington, uh, uh, I don't know. Um, what did I put as, as like as D tier, something that they, they all love. I put it out like D tier, be like that candy is trash. And so I kind of just let that go for maybe five or 10 minutes as I was going mm -hmm. through and kind of changing things in response to that. And I was like, well, you see how that went? We're going to do that, but with the absolutist rule. You guys all have experience <laughs> with candy, right? And you have your own preferences and you can make those arguments. So we're going to have to figure out, you know, who, who these rulers are, what they did, what makes them um, good or bad or somewhere in between and kind of rank them uh, in between each other. And then they're like, oh, that sounds so cool. So nice. Um, yeah, it was it was nice. Awesome. I, I also plan on using that to do feedback for my class for end project units. Uh, so yeah. like after we do, we usually do maybe eight or so major projects during a year. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to make a big list out of those. You can make your own tier list on tier list maker. Uh, just put like screenshots of all of them. And that way I can figure out what projects were good and what projects were really bad. Uh, yeah, or at least like such you know, a great idea how they're going. The funny thing, though, is that when kids were asking, oh, are we going to like watch these in front of the class? Because they're all they're all anxious about, you know, hearing themselves talk. Mm -hmm. And so I said, no, but I am going to put uh, your videos on like a, a shared slideshow so you can watch each other's and kind of see where they're um, where other groups put them. And then somebody had the idea to make a tier list tier list. Nice. 
Not, and not, I was like, I am totally going to do that. But now I'm only going to do like the S and A tiers, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to, I wouldn't put anybody on the spot by putting them any lower, but um, I think that would be kind of fun just to make a quick video of like, okay, so group one, second hour, you know, yours was S tier over here. Um, I love what you did with this, blah, 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 blah. Just make a quick uh, video with some of the, some of the better like exemplars. And then nice. that way I have that uh, feedback going into next year if I do this too. So that's cool. that like kind of that. a fun thing just evolves. Yeah. Um, speaking of projects, we've been working on uh, workshopping magazine spreads. Um, so students, every project outside of the very first one, I have students vote on. Uh, so I'll give them four or five, maybe six different options. Then we just go with the majority. And that's the project that we work on for about the next three or four weeks. And that gets more and more open-ended as time goes on. Uh, I teach a, a digital media class. So it's pretty step-by-step on learning the software. So we have to go a little mm-hmm. like baby steps towards the beginning and then it gets more hardcore as time goes on. Um, anyways, the students voted to do magazine spread. So they're making uh, hypothetical templates for a magazine or whatever they want in Adobe InDesign. We spent the last, I don't know, maybe two or so weeks learning how to use the software. It's just practice activities, that kind of thing. Um, but then the last week has been workshopping which the way I do workshop in my classes, uh, students all just work on stuff, obviously. I give them a huge list of resources with all the hotkeys, walk around, help them, assist them. But then they turn in their drafts to Floop, which uh, Floop one day will maybe sponsor uh, me because I feel like I rep them all the time. So it's uh, floopedu.com. And Floop is a software that allows you to turn in assignments, uh, just kind of like a normal Dropbox, and then you leave little dots of feedback throughout the assignment, which is hyper useful for an art style class because I can point to very specific elements on the page. If I try to leave feedback through an LMS or something, it's like describing uh, like a foreign object, like, like alien objects. People like, you should move the left line one inch further to, like it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so it's very visual. Um, and what I like about it is one, you can leave as much feedback as you want. It's, it, you, I mean, I leave a lot of feedback on those things, um, both good and bad. You can store that feedback in uh, bank because I tend to say the exact same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. You can see if students have read the feedback. Uh, every now and then there'll be a student who I've left like 20 things of feedback for and it says 0% feedback read and they turn it back in. I'm like, no, you gotta, you gotta listen to these things so I can help you get better. Um, and they can also reply to the feedback right within the software. So you'll get like a little notification in that way. Like if someone's like, I don't know how to do that, or I don't understand what you are saying here. I can respond to that any hour of the day, as opposed to just during class. Because usually during class, I have to be helping everyone because it's confusing. <laughs> so I'm always going around helping different folks. And that's kind of an asynchronous way that they can then submit things and interact with me if I'm maybe not available. Um, and as a result, maybe by the third or fourth different turn in, because I've gotten used to at this point, the fact that it's never good enough. It's always a resubmission. I'll, I'll be nice about it. Uh, but we always try to make things better no matter what level you're at. Um, by the third or fourth submission, they are vastly improved. Um, and that's how I, I do ungrading. I still have to assign a grade, but your grade is determined off of how you implement that feedback. So if you turn in something that's maybe in comparison to, I guess, the norm, not so great. Maybe you're just not so good with computers. Maybe you're just not used to doing art. Your improved product is not going to look the same as someone who maybe has taken a digital media class before and knows exactly what's going on. Their initial submission is going to be pretty darn good, but they also have to make theirs better. So we're operating from like a sizable gap versus a small gap to improve. But in that case, both students would obtain A's. 
Um, the last thing that's nice about Floop is you don't have to assign numbers or a letter grade. Uh, so I just give a smiley face every single time until it's at an A. I never give a grade. It's just smiley face, smiley face, smiley face. And eventually you get an A once you finally turn in the last time. Um, and the vast majority of students are really good about turning those back in because they want right. to see that A pop up. Right. I, I love the idea, too, that it's just it's not done until it's done. Right. Like, hey, what what kind of things can we do? Not just turn it in and get a C minus. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, I got a 72 percent. Just move on to the next thing. Right. That that just that doesn't teach them anything. But um, if they're go constantly going through that iteration and um, and having to then start to th that will start to imprint those habits of mind and those um, and those sort of heuristics for themselves where they'll begin to ask themselves uh, to preempt that feedback. Because my guess is that students don't, you know, generally want to be like, oh, I have to do more work to fix this. So they'll mm -hmm. start to check themselves, which is to say, OK, if I'm McNutt right now and I'm looking at this <laughs> or if I'm I, they'll start to put on like a peer lens, too, which is to say, like, oh, if I were someone else looking at this, which then, right, they're starting to think about their thinking. That's that. That's a meta skill that's that's kind of important. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of think, okay, is this done yet? Is this done yet? What could be what could be done better? And the products that you've shown for that, Chris, are, are awesome. Like the work that kids did, um, you know, it, it's you could say that those were professional magazine spreads, and I would believe it entirely. Like this just stellar um, work. And that's not that's not the product of grades and grading. That's the that's the product of iteration and feedback. That's the power of those things, you know? Right. Work, workshopping is so powerful in general. Just the ability. Yeah. I would say there's like three major things that make this work. One is delaying the grade, which is an ungrading technique. As right. in, I basically don't give a grade until it's at an A. Now, when like, yes, the semester's over and I have to report a grade, I'll meet with those students that never turned it in and say, yo, I need something from you. And we'll negotiate right. that and figure that out. But I would say maybe for those last assignment, 80% of students are at an A right now. Uh, so the vast majority get there. Um, and that means that everyone's constantly iterating upon and improving their work. The second thing is I give them a ton of time, arguably too much time at, at points. Um, they have uh, almost a week and a half to go through this workshopping process of resubmitting things. And that does mean that some students will finish early. Mm -hmm. um, so what I do is uh, it's kind of tongue in cheek, uh, but it does work is I have them identify a special friend and their special friend has to also finish the assignment at an A before they can do anything else. So it forces the students to work with each other to improve with each other. Cause the student who finished it super fast, who already has an A that's, that's killing it can then teach the other kid, hey, how to do this better? Because again, usually I'm answering questions all period. I can't necessarily sit next to a kid for 45 minutes and help them, but their special right. friend can. Uh, so uh, it it works. The, the kids kind of get a kick out of it because it's it's very, it's almost cynical, <laughs> but uh, they they get used to that and they, they improve with each other. No, no, no. Th think about the power of that though, because then like, then kids are, they're being the instructor for their peers, you know, peer instructors in that case. And then they are right as they are teaching their, their peers in that context, they are reinforcing, you know, that learning for themselves. So, I mean, I mean, how, how often do we say like teaching, teaching something is the best way to learn it? Well, how often do we actually get kids to do that in the classroom? And, and like you said, it doesn't make sense for you to have to be, be available to all, you know, 30 some odd kids every single class period. It's impossible. So empowering kids um, through that collaborative, that collaborative process 
not, not just, I mean, makes for a better classroom environment for everybody, but then kids are learning more and, and learning better than they would be if they just had to rely on you as the sole source of that stuff. So that's a, that's a special friend strategy. That's a great strategy, man. It works. And the final thing I'll say about that is a lot of people, whenever they try to tackle on grading, say, hey, I don't know how I would ever have time to do this. Well, the initial day or two when I get all those floop submissions starting to turn in, I see like 120 floop submissions I need to get through. Yeah. Um, one, the bank helps a lot. I can get through them really quick with the bank because most people tend to make the same errors. But two, that's the day where I say, hey, you all really need to work with your special friends today because I'm going to sit here and I'm going to finish all of these. And it's all done during class. I rarely um, give any feedback at home, if at all. And I just super transparent with the kids and tell them I don't have time to do this. So I just need to do it yeah. right now. Uh, and you can all work on each other on something and I'll, I'll be with you in a second. Uh, no, that's perfectly that's, fine. That's, that's such a smart strategy. I, I kind of try to do something like that with AP Euro DBQs, which are infamously, uh, you know, tedious to grade, especially if you have as many AP Euro kids as I do, um, you know, 85, 90 kids. So, so I do something similar where they have to peer review two other, um, two other essays that somebody else, uh, other peer submissions, right? Um, which means that they're going to get at least two other sets of eyeballs on their own work. And then they have to go back through and like respond to that feedback um, in there and then turn it into me. So that by the time I see it, their stuff is already all annotated. It might even go through a round of revisions if they, if right. they need to do that. So then by the time I'm seeing it, um, you know, it, it's probably a better, a better product, but then it has annotations on there that are going to help me get through that more quickly. So that way, you know, say the, the, the AP Euro DBQ is scored out of uh, seven points. Well, if they already have two sets of peer, um, peer scores on there, you know, say one says it's a, a three and one says it's a seven. Well, that means, you know, for me that there needs to be some recalibration and in the inter-rater reliability there, but also then I'll spend more time giving feedback on those. But if one says it's a six and the other one says it's a six, well, then I can kind of skim through that just to, just to kind of secure it. But there's really not a lot of feedback I need to give that kids haven't already nailed. Um, and then kids are doing that evaluation. You know, if you want to think about that, uh, the old school kind of Bloom's taxonomy, right? Well, what are, what do we want kids to be able to do? We want them to create, to evaluate, right. to do all those high level thinking skills. Well, they're doing that with their peer work when they do peer review. So it's like, that's not just a way to Im improve um, classroom practice for ourselves and kind of decrease that burden. But if kids are doing the thinking and they're doing the teaching and they're doing the evaluating, well, then they're doing better learning in the first place. It's just a better pedagogical uh, you know, strategy to use. <laughs> All right. So let's move into... Uh, Is that a space panther? What it was that? It's a, it's a spaceship that goes by. It's the same transition I've been using the whole time. God. Again, no, there's no sound in space. We got we to gotta get... There you go. Did um, I just get tased? So uh, next <laughs> we have... Um, some Q and A questions. Yeah, uh, I, we're going to address two right now uh, for for time purposes. I'll open us up with the first one here. This comes from Jeff. Um, Jeff asks uh, via Twitter, "Can you give tips or reading suggestions on helping reluctant learners to engage in their learning?" Um, so I've been thinking about this one, uh, yeah. and. I have, I have three things I thought about at the top of my head that I think could help. And all of them are fairly obvious, but I think it's worth reiterating. Um, one is cheesy, one serious, and one is kind of like a classroom strategy. So the first cheesy one, and I feel like this has to be said, is the, the building relationships component. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's worth mentioning that 
a lot of us tend to build relationships only within the first three days of the year. And then all other relationship building solely comes through content in our class, which is something. But I think there's also space for stopping at various points throughout the year. I would even say like once a month to just play games and hang out and make class something that's not content or stress related. Because in my experience, the most reluctant students are also the ones who are not doing very well. And as a result, they are probably not doing very well in the majority of their classes. And the last thing they want to do is build a relationship with you in a class that's not going well. So taking some time throughout the year to just pause and stop and just do something silly to get to know that student better, because that you might be able to use that to figure out, well, what's going on? How can I help you in some way? So you're the trusted individual. There have been many times, I'm sure, where teachers have identified a student who is failing every other class, but is passing or at least doing decent in your class. And usually that's because of relationship building. Um, so that's kind of a cheesy one. It's, it's kind of always sad, but I think it's worth reiterating. Um, the second, which is more serious, is nine times out of 10, students that are reluctant learners to the point that they're failing have something else that's going on that is not school related. Uh, and being able to forward them on to guidance, mental health, folks that they can talk to is vastly more important than anything academic that's going on. There has been many circumstances where we've had students either repeat grades, repeat classes, et cetera. And it's been totally fine because they've been talking with you know, a mental health counselor for twice a week for the last year. And that's where their focus is right now. There's no rush to get through school. We need to focus on those underlying factors first before we can even think about caring about uh, some academic course. Like who cares about digital media if you're homeless, for example? Yeah. Like it's, it's irrelevant. Um, so, so centering that. Um, finally, in terms of a classroom strategy, I kind of, I, I'm just going to repeat the exact same thing. That special friend strategy actually does help a lot because if students aren't motivated by me, they tend to enjoy being motivated by their peers. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a lot of success where students who maybe just tend to not do much uh, in the classes, they just don't enjoy it, they don't want to do it. With their friend being there who they enjoy being with, they will start doing things. It's like, hey, you know, this is fun. We should do it together. Let's try this thing. And like they teach them how to do it um, because they get along with their friends. They want to do something with their friend. Uh, it's any way that we can get peers interacting with each other where the peer can show the other peer, oh, hey, this isn't that bad or it's actually pretty cool or let's do something fun with it, uh, the better uh, because they tend to uh, kind of hone in on that and see the value in the activity more than maybe the authoritative figure. Yeah, I think those are great tips. Um, I, I think to take a step back, like my initial response um, to this when I saw this question too was initially like, well, what is a quote, reluctant learner, um, right. you know, is, is that, is that even something that, that exists? Um, and in that, I, I can kind of remember that being a turning point for me too. I can remember the specific student and the specific year. Um, he was, uh, he was a, he was a football player and, you know, he was failing my then world history class. Um, but he was, you know, playing varsity football and doing incredibly well in, in that endeavor. And, and that for me, was the biggest thing in kind of challenging that reluctant learner because here was a kid who was not a reluctant learner. He was a voracious 
um, learner. You know, he was an adept learner when it came to, you know, football plays and, and, and uh, the, the stuff that mattered to him on, on the field. And, you know, world history just didn't enter into the picture for him most of the time. Right. Um, so really, it was about kind of decentering uh, myself in that picture and just trying to meet the student where they were at just to say, hey, I know that football is, is a thing that's very important to you. How can, how can I help um, in, in, in making this class matter, because whether or not you, you like it or like me or whatever, you know, you have to have this class to be able to do that thing. So how can we make this a place, um, where where you can be successful in here? So that way you can be successful in the things that you want to do on the football field. Um, and which is really surprising that it took me so long to, to want to do that because in a lot of ways I can think of myself in high school as a reluctant learner. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't want to do math, uh, but you know what I was doing? I was trying to figure out how many, um, you know, I knew to to the exact, uh, you know, decimal point, how many, how much experience points I got for killing a character in, <laughs> in uh, you know, my, my online RPGs that I was playing back in the early 2000s. And I knew how many of them I would need to kill in order to rank up to the next level. Um, and so those were the kinds of things I was thinking about and drawing on my paper in math class. Uh, and, you know, I think in a lot of ways, my math instructor saw me as a reluctant math learner. And yet here were the ways that I was, you know, applying that to the things that were important for me. Um, So I think just maybe taking a step back and putting things in perspective and just saying, you know, kids aren't, kids might be reluctant to talk about economics, but, um, or to learn economics in your class or to do the work when, when, when they're given the opportunity to do so. But I'm willing to bet that they're, they're not reluctant learners as, as a whole, find, find the thing that they can um, really sink their teeth into, or that you wait, you can you can help ignite in them um, and partner with them to realize either here's how um, the things that we're doing in class could be important for reaching those goals, or just to level with them and say, hey, um, you know, I, I understand that this might be irrelevant for you, but how can I help you um, get through this <laughs> so that way you can get on to the thing that that is going to be important for you in your life? And and that's been kind of a successful strategy um, for me too um, on that front. Right. That's a really good point. And I think that's worth mentioning that like, yeah, because uh, I, I didn't really bring this up in my answer, but being careful behind labeling students from a deficit angle, like you wouldn't want to send a kid to the guidance counselor that's failing your class that otherwise is doing great in all other aspects of like their other classes and their like their friend group, etc. Yeah. Um, that's kind of like a circumstance where we just need to talk to them about what's going on, trying to be transparent, figuring out Sometimes just what's the bare minimum they, they need to do? Like I've, I've leveled with kids many times where they just don't care about digital media. That's fine. It could be frustrating sometimes as a teacher because that's what you're passionate about. That's what you like doing. And you feel a need that most students need to learn it or else you wouldn't be teaching it. But the exact same time, I, I know in the back of my head that the vast majority of students probably aren't going to use this. Um, and sometimes that's just a matter of taking a step back and saying, hey, this is what I, I know I have to have you do. Um, and students are very responsive usually to, to you kind of fighting in their court and trying your best to help them out. Yeah. Uh, At a certain point, you know, I, I've done this a lot for kids where you, you were saying earlier, you'll work with kids to, you won't grade them out until they get an A. And then for kids who, you know, don't engage in that process or, or can't for whatever reason, then you can kind of grades as negotiable. And, and that's where honestly, like ungrading or even contract grading is, is super, um, super flexible and super useful for kids is, 
um, then you can actually work to kind of establish here's a floor, right? Here's let's at least get this this groundwork going here so that way you can get credit for the class. And a lot of times that's empowering for kids then who want to do a little bit more because you can say, hey, here's here's the bare minimum that I can when, when I go to put grades in at the end of the semester, I'll give you a D if you hit these boxes, you know. Um, and then a lot of times they'll they'll figure out that that's not actually you know too difficult for them. Um, and then they'll unlock that D and they'll say like, okay, what, what else can I do? And then, so you can actually kind of raise the bar for them, um, progressively through that rather than just have them languish with an F or, um, something else for the whole semester. And then at the last minute again, be like, Hey, what do I have to do to pass the class? You know, as teachers complain about it, you know, if we're proactive with it, we just say, Hey, here's what you need to do. And then if you hit that bar and you want to work on something else, great. You know, you're secure in at least passing that class. But I found in my experience that kids will want to at least do a little bit more um, because they feel energized and motivated by that. Let's move into question two. Yeah. Can so I take the from, lead on that one? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, cool. So it's from Chandra Roberts, uh, sent it on, on Twitter there. She said, what a student, I uh, wanted to know what a student-driven curriculum looks like in practice. She said, I'm super interested in this, but get quickly overwhelmed when I try to think about implementing it. Um, and gosh, that that was one that I think... Uh, Chandra, if you're listening, the previous 20 minutes <laughs> where we were talking about um, what that looks like can actually be very helpful, right? That that Chris's special friend strategy and and some more of those cooperative learning things um, can actually be pretty pretty secretive ways to help unlock student-centered classrooms. Um, but I think you know the theory behind that too, or the pedagogy behind that is you've created safe places where kids feel um, emotionally, intellectually, physically safe in order to um, contribute and collaborate because they know they're not going to be punished or accused of cheating by helping out each other. You know, you're creating a collaborative space. But I want to take a step back too and and say that for me, um, well, I guess a student-centered classroom can, can really look like a lot of different things. But the way that I approach it in my classroom um, is really more along the lines of a, of a democratic classroom environment. So I start out the year just asking kids, um, some questions about expectations. What are expectations you have of your peers? What are expectations you have of yourself? What are expectations you have of me? And we actually use um, those things to build a set of uh, collective commitments that I, I write a draft up um, and kids, I give that to kids. I give them all the data that they had submitted there. You know, it's been anonymized and we can just see straight up, hey, what what goals do we have for ourselves in this classroom space? And you kind of build a social contract um, with kids in that process. I have them vote on it. You know, we, we do a poll. It's like, hey, um, do you agree with the expectations for yourself, for your peers and for adults as outlined in the, you know, draft document that you looked at? And unanimously, generally, 100% of kids say, yeah, that's that's what I want. And and that's, I think, a way then that you can show that you, you're not only soliciting feedback from kids, but you're being responsive to it. And you're saying, here's how I'm going to live up to the expectations that you've laid out for me. Here's how I'm going to lay out the expectations that you have for each other and for yourself. Um, and really then you can build in whatever projects, PBL, um, kind of whatever the curriculum that you have around that um, and the student-centered maybe strategies but I think it just starts with understanding that democratic classroom, the more that kids see that you're not just interested in getting their feedback, uh, but also being responsive to it, I think can then um, really help not just build relationships, but, but build a more collaborative um, classroom culture. What do you got, Chris? Very similar thing. And just taking that then over to the curriculum mm. where you let students know like, hey, this is what I have to cover. But the way that we cover it 
is really in your court and figuring out what it is that you're interested in. Um, so I was saying before that usually the first project in my class is very teacher centric. Uh, I tell them like, hey, I need to teach you how to even start so you even know what's possible. And we spend about three or four weeks where it's very much uh, fairly traditional. It's just like, hey, here's how you do this. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do this. And we get through it. And the kids know that like on the horizon, they'll have a little bit more self-selection. Uh, then we go through that exact same kind of democratic classroom selection where they choose between various things that kind of I'm comfortable with doing. Like I tell them like, hey, this is what I know how to do. And we can propose other things too. And that's, it's not just like a Google form where it's they like vote once. It's more of like, hey, we're going to brainstorm something together. And here's some different ideas. What do you think about this thing? It's just a class discussion. Mm -hmm. Then we have a form. Then we vote on it based off of what we populated there. Um, and I always give students an opt out as well. So if they all vote on something uh, and they like, you know, three or four kids were really passionate about doing something else. Um, I say, hey, propose it to me. Let's talk about it during that workshop time. Let's figure out what exactly you want to do with that. However, I will say that almost every single time, once all the students start working on something and those students realize what it is and they see their friends doing it, they tend to just go along with what they were doing anyway. Um, mm. There's maybe three students per year that actually do an alternative to what everyone else is doing because typically students are going to pick things that are cool, <laughs> like or else they wouldn't have voted on it to begin with. Um, and as a result, that does take away some of your power as a teacher because some of the things that maybe you thought were really cool aren't. Um, I was going to do a unit on uh, like generative art. So like where you take like different eyes, different ears, and you put them in a Photoshop file and it makes like 10,000 different images based off the combinations. I personally think that's super cool. The kids said, no, that sucks. I have no desire. I had literally <laughs> three kids out of 125 that were like, oh, that sounds cool. Um, so uh, finding ways to, to put you know, put the power in the students' hands to, to guide that curriculum. And you can still have authority as a teacher. Like you can still say like, hey, this is the theme or this is the concept I need you to explore because that's what the standard is. Um, and it doesn't mean that everyone has to go off and do their own thing either. They can all be collectively deciding on something that they're all going to do. That's okay because uh, that teaches that democratic uh, cooperative behavior that we want them to develop. Um, it's just finding more and more ways to, to make that work student-centric without it devolving into more of a faux choice where it's, I'm giving you all of the information and then you have the choice to make a poster or mm -hmm. like make a song. Because a lot of times when you do that, it it's trivial. Like it doesn't feel authentic. Instead, when I say like we're proposing projects, like we're doing like a full on project. It's a, it's a, it's a professional piece that everyone's deciding on if they want to do. Now we're going into game show mode. Space um, so I'm pretty sure last time you started off our game show, but this time I feel like I need to start. Um, I don't have, I, I have music, but I'm not going to play it just yet. I need uh, Last time you, you stumped me a little bit by having a ton of context uh, in your quote unquote lightning round, which took like 35 minutes. So this ball time I'm going to bring in ball lightning. I'm, I'm going to develop some uh, ball lightning uh, questions of my own here. Um, so the theme of this uh, pop quiz, which the, the plot is, is that whoever loses this gets uh, pushed off the spaceship. They get sent out of the airwalk. Um, so this is a life or death scenario. So stress is on. Um, the theme of our quiz today is cognitive science and research and studying the brain, the things that we've been alluding to over the course of this podcast. And my quiz 
is called Doug Lamov said what? So this is a game show based around Doug Lamov, author of Teach Like a Champion. Uh, if you're not familiar, Teach Like a Champion is the best-selling professional development book for educators, both in the United States, but also in Europe. Uh, Teach Like a Champion features all these different strategies to uh, try it down a little bit. Uh, all these different strategies to uh, essentially help, quote unquote, help students learn. Um, it's been criticized for being very uh, authoritative. Uh, a lot of the, the techniques involve literally controlling students' bodies. Um, I think many people will be familiar with the concept of slant, uh, which has been popularized from that, which is sit up, lean forward, ask and answer questions, nod your head and track the speaker. The idea being like, you raise your hand, everyone's supposed to look at you and supposed to like nod their head yes, like when someone gets the answer right. It's used by a lot of um, uh, like charter schools uh, that tend to focus on test scores where kids sit in rows. And it just feels very, uh, very labby, very lab style, very BF Skinner, uh, very Walden much too. Just, yeah, very Walden too. This is the Walden <laughs> two dreamscape is teach like a champion. So uh, my game is based around, did Doug Lamov say this or not say this? Uh, so here's, here's, here's question. Here's question one. Okay. Teach Like a Champion is about to release Teach Like a Champion 3.0. I believe 2.0 came out like, God, like more than 10 years ago. Uh, so 3.0 is in development and it centers itself on rebranding a bit. For some background, I have listened to about four different podcasts each hour long featuring Doug Lamov. Uh, and I also have been reading Doug Lamov's blog. So there's been a lot of research into this. I had to... Uh, rake a lot of leaves yesterday. So I put that in and I uh, got very frustrated listening to Doug Lamont. So 3.0 is in development. It's focused on rebranding around equity and inclusion and backing up its information more with research. Um, Lamov on various occasions has prided himself on understanding the research and not only drawing from cognitive science as we've been referencing here, but also social scientists and economists. Um, in 2019, he wrote this article called Who's Reading the Cognitive Science? And he writes in there, quote, Cognitive science has learned more about how people learn in the last 20 years than in the previous 300 years combined. But you visit a school or a district and talk about research on memory or perception, and people haven't read it. Few people are pulling out their copy of Kahneman out of their bag. You only see that in some parts of the high-performing entrepreneurial school sector, where people are serious about proving a concept, but not in the average in school. Instead, you often find people carrying around the baggage of unfounded or discredited ideas, Dewey, multiple intelligences, and vague platitudes about learning by doing or teaching your peers about the best form of learning. Vygotsky's writings from 1918 count as science. Um, so that's a, that's a common theme across most of Lamont's blog and work. He, he works with entrepreneurs and has charters and just a focus on ec economics and kind of global competitiveness in the marketplace. Uh, that's the size of the point though. Nick, do you know who Kahneman is that he's writing about there? I, I feel like I've seen the name, but I couldn't tell you what concepts are associated with Kahneman. Okay, so brief descriptor. This is, this is like super brief. Kahneman's a, a psychologist 
Uh, he mostly applies his work to business and how businesses operate, but his most famous work is Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, which oh, is the, the thing that okay. he published. He developed this idea behind two different thought systems. There's system oh, okay. one. System one is like fight or flight. It's how we survive. It's our, our, like our first thing that we think about whenever we think of something. Okay. And then there's system two, which is slow and logical thought. And the cognitive science crowd, the folks that run these behaviorist style classrooms have connected Skinner and Lamov's work uh, centered around the research by Kahneman behind the system one fight or flight and system two, which is slow and logical thought. Hmm. So here's, here's the actual question. Here's the Doug Lamov says what? Okay. So did Doug Lamov write this quote? In particular, it underscores a couple of points. Kahneman writes that decision-making starts with perception, and so systematic exposure to situations where players learn to perceive and recognize viable solutions is critical. This is why it's necessary to build knowledge. You want to build problem-solving ability. The biggest single misperception in education today is that problem-solving is something that you can develop without background knowledge. Hmm. Oh, that, that's totally something Lamont would say, yeah. Yes, he, he did say that. I didn't cue up the you're right sound. I only have you're wrong. Uh, you're right. There it is. You're right. Uh, Doug Lamov does believe that as this is kind of this is a give me question because this mm-hmm. is kind of the basis behind behaviorist cognitive science driven classrooms that you have to do a ton of rote memorization, aka mm-hmm. use those teaching machines until you memorize all the right background knowledge to firmly operate doing anything. So if you do a creative project that's open-ended and kids have to work together to do it, it's not an effective strategy because students don't have all of that core background knowledge. The overall idea is centering on Kahneman that you need to like drill, literally drill students into understanding all this information so that their system one, their fight or flight response is they just automatically know the right answer. They don't have time to get to system two because it's going to take too long and they don't have that background knowledge yet. Instead, focus on system one, get them to know everything so that way they can do system two work down the road because they'll have such an extensive uh, uh, background knowledge there. And uh, it also gets into like, well, the cognitive load of system two is too much. You just need to make sure you have all that information up front, that kind of thing. You know what's really interesting, though? I mean, I mentioned that Mary Helen Imardino Yang interview, and she mm-hmm. addresses that perfectly because, right, in in certain contexts, maybe like England and stuff, they're they're really heavy on like that cognitive load management, et cetera. And even in that interview, she says, "This is a direct quote from from uh, from Imardino Yang here. What if things like regurgitating memories and factual or procedural information that's been curated by someone else?" What if knowing all that stuff doesn't make you a better person? What if it doesn't help you know what to do in the world? And there's actually excellent evidence that it doesn't. So Mm. it's increasingly, again, right? I I feel like the cognitive science, uh, uh, hashtag CogSci, say of the last 10 years, is exactly what you were talking about with Skinner back in the 40s and 50s, right? What if we built our education system um, around what Skinner had imagined in Walden uh, or in Walden 2? You know, mm-hmm. we we would we would uh, we would abhor it, right? We would view it uh, uh, as as a as a total um, failure of humanity if we had built it along his model. And yet, 
right? We've taken the very narrow interpretation of cognitive science from from um, folks like uh, Lamov, not that he's a cognitive scientist, but we get it filtered through him, right? In terms of building schools around just a few cognitive science principles and results, managing cognitive load and retrieval practice. And we've built our whole school system around managing your memory. Oh my God, right? Yeah. We're, we're going to look back at this in shock and horror. And I mean, you don't have to go far to find schools that do operate like this. Like Lamov has the Uncommon Schools Network, right? Uh, which like they release videos. You can find them on YouTube of like how to effectively cold call on people. Uh, and it's just like, it's a whole thing where I was going to put this in as a question, but uh, like how you're supposed to ask cold calling questions and that cold calling is actually a way to develop relationships because cold calling is a way of saying that you matter. And that the research says that cold calling ensures that students do better on tests. But I did a quick Google when I read that. I was like, does the research actually say that? Mm -hmm. um, and the research overwhelmingly, just for like a quick like summary of 10 different things, I was reading the abstracts, that cold calling leads to so much anxiety that students that are cold called on don't perform as well as students who are not cold called on. Um, because one, in order to do cold calling in the first place, you have to have a school environment that's very like lecture driven uh, because right. you would just be talking at your kids all day and eventually they'd answer the questions. But two, like anyone who ever has been in a class that's had cold calling knows how stressful that is, especially in high school where you just like are always worried that someone's going to judge you for getting the answer wrong. Like why, why would that even be an effective strategy to begin with? Now, you know what's funny is you mentioned you mentioned that 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 uh, that social stress and that social anxiety, mm -hmm. um, and that in that part that's going to play a very important role in uh, in my three questions to follow. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll we'll have to come back to that. All right, so let's get on to question two. So question two: Teach like a champion, like almost every single book on education, will tell you that relationships are incredibly important to the classroom community. Teach Like a Champion 2.0 features 62 different techniques to improve classroom instruction. So here's the, Doug Lamov said what? So Lamov writes in Teach Like a Champion about technique 31, developing relationships at the beginning and ending of class. Did he say, quote, in order to best get to know your students, it's important to build a space where they are respected and welcomed. Before every class, be sure to greet every single student with a firm handshake, establish and build rapport, ask them about how their day is going, and make a note of this later in the lesson. Do not let any student avoid the handshake or ignore the question. It's vitally important that every single student understands your respect and that you are the head of the classroom. I, I, that is some Harry Wong stuff right there. I, I firmly believe with a firm handshake that that, that is definitely Doug Lamoff. The answer is no, that is not Doug Lamov. Get ready for this. If you thought Teach Like a Champion was extreme, <laughs> here you go. So Lamov states on the podcast, Bind the Gap, episode nine, one of the, the many podcasts I listen to, an anecdote about his second grade daughter, who seemingly his second grade daughter just really hates school. She's very frustrated by everything that goes on. It's almost like he's using her as kind of a scapegoat uh, to criticize teachers. So Lamov recalled a story where his daughter was in class, which I'm assuming this is a remote class, and the teacher spent time asking all the students how their weekends went. And Lamov states that this is a useless piece of class time because the teacher's role is just to teach, his words. 
building relationships in this manner isn't useful because teachers are because students don't see the teacher's role as someone who needs to know what's going on, on the weekend. Instead, the teacher should just build relationships by starting class and learning about students through the content. So the teacher's only role is teach content. That's what the students like. That's what they're used to. So the way that they're going to get to know you is by asking questions about biology, which is the reference that he uses, which I mean, that wow. that kind of speaks for itself before for, for what Lamov thinks the purpose, the purpose and value of a classroom is. Does Lamov also think that putting an infant child inside the, a warmed crib that you don't have to interact <laughs> with it at all would, would grow it to, to be a better human? Put I mean, a little hamster feeder in there and a it just box feels so connected. It just everything about that quote blows my mind. Because how many kids use, like, how many kids develop a community by being in the class? Like, are they not allowed to have friends at school? Are they not allowed to be friends with their teachers? Are they not allowed to, like, have another trusted adult in their lives that they can talk to things about? Wow. Um, Like, in this hypothetical world of uh, Dog Lamov Teach Like a Champion School, the only thing kids talk about outside of at lunch is the content in the class and any other information is completely useless. Like it's wasted time. I, I, I couldn't believe that quote was real. Um, he doesn't believe in any of that stuff. You shouldn't ask kids how their weekend went because that's just, you're wasting your time. Um, he says something along the lines of like, I understand why a teacher would do this because they're trying to do the right thing. But ultimately, uh, you know, my, my kid doesn't care about that. They just want to get class started because you're wasting content time. That's not your job. And I'm like, whoa, that's a, that's a, that's a belief. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are uh, one for two. Yep. All right. You'll enjoy this next question. Let's do it. Um, okay. So in Dog Lamov's desire to have a more research-backed Teach Like a Champion 3.0, he's also reaching out and networking with the Research Ed organization. Mm. So way back in 2015, Tom Bennett, who is the founder of Research Ed, posted oh, on Doug Lamov's oh blog about the movement. And since then, Research Ed has been featured in Lamov's work in almost all of the publications. So uh, or I should say Research Ed has featured Lamov's work as mm-hmm. Doug Lamov is kind of referenced all the time in Research Ed. So uh, Lamov wrote about Bennett. Uh, this is a direct quote from his blog. He writes brilliant stuff like this recent piece on group work, which examines the research that, spoiler allegedly, supports the practice and then examines its strengths and limitations. He notes that he uses group work himself and then gets down to brass tacks, like someone who works every day in the classroom when and why would you ever use it with what cautions and how can you address them you know another balanced pragmatic sensible informative instantly useful piece for teachers the kind you see every day with useful pieces like that popping up from him regularly really the only reason not to like him is that he's both trenchant and funny at the same time anyway if you've read tom's stuff and thought like me more like that for teachers please you're in luck he's coming to america as founder of Research Ed, an organization that's about bringing research to teachers in useful ways, he's gone global and is running a conference that I highly recommend, end quote. Hmm. So <laughs> Research Ed, um, if the listener is not familiar, is an organization that has quite a large following, especially in the UK, that focuses almost entirely on behaviorism. Um, hmm. They use Skinner as a primary reference in their work. Like they, they have multiple publications I was reading where they're defending Skinner, talking about how we need to go back to Skinner. And they kind of write pieces that blend together, teach like a champion, Skinner, and some other like economists like Kahneman, and say, hey, this is the reason why we need to change classes to be more like those uncommon schools, more of these schools that are very um, rote-driven, that focus on quote-unquote core knowledge. Um, in addition, 
They've also come underneath a lot of scrutiny. Um, Benjamin Dockstadter has a piece on this, which I highly recommend, the education critic. Um, he references it as equity backlash. Uh, for example, um, in 2019, the research egg group had made this very large infographic. Nick, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, I have this pulled up right now because yeah. I was finding it as you were talking about so, it. So there's like maybe like 100 people on that infographic. I don't know the number. Yes. But I'm pretty confident that all of them are white. Um, right. So in response, the research ed leaders and many of their followers, instead of like apologizing or saying like, hey, we need to focus more on this. It's a great point, et cetera. Um, they basically just made a bunch of flippant comments about how this didn't matter. Our representation wasn't important. Mm -hmm. Like things like, you know, we should add, you know, more people from like Nordic countries on there, huh? like that kind of stuff. The leaders had on numerous accounts. Uh, they've been aggressive towards identity, like they make transphobic remarks, they comment a lot on diversity initiatives. A lot of the research egg crowd, a lot of its speakers that are uh, oftenly at their events, including Tom Bennett himself, um, have a lot of overlapping commentary with conservative pundits like Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro. Mm -hmm. uh, they've been associated with the intellectual dark web, the IDW folks. Um, so for example, uh, Robert Cry Cragen, perhaps, um, he's one of the speakers that talks at, uh, uh talks at research at conferences. Um, he recently retweeted the chalkboard review, um, our, our friends over there, chalkboard review, <laughs> uh, chalkboard review is a publication that is connected to James Lindsay that publishes anti CRT work, um, and a lot of very questionable comments about, um, equity and education. Or um, recently, Tom Bennett, who begins the founder, he retweeted a piece from Jonathan Porter about how schools shouldn't teach multicultural religious ideas because of depth over breadth and cognitive load, and that students have to understand Britain's Christian heritage. And when you start teaching about all the other religions, that's just going to confuse them, and they're not going to know what's going on. Uh, so instead, just focus on Britain's Christian heritage, because that's who the primary people in Britain are. That's a real article. You should Google it. It's, it's incredibly interesting how this behaviorist, cog sci kind of authoritarian crowd also happens to be taking a stand on the culture war that is essentially like a, a white supremacist lens. It's, it's almost like all of that cognitive science behaviorist research is rooted in like white supremacist ideas, which, uh, spoiler alert, it is. <laughs> a lot of this comes from, stuff comes from like eugenics. Um, so here is the... Uh, the dog Lamov said what? So, <laughs> okay, you want to say I'm addicted to context, Chris? What was yeah. that? So this is the Doug Lamov said what? I needed a backstory on who Research Ed was. <laughs> I so, was going to say, is there a Doug Lamov question at the end so of that? So here's the Doug Lamov. In 2021, Lamov, this was like a couple months ago, Lamov okay. wrote a statement on his blog. Quote, in my work as an educator, coach, and business owner, I have been fortunate enough to be informed by great thinkers across the globe and work to make Teach Like a Champion a force for good, ensuring that students reach their full potential. In that mission, I have consistently used research and promoted others that do. In one instance, I had referenced Tom Bennett, founder of the Research Egg Community. Regretfully, in recent years, the Research Egg Community has consistently promoted messages of hate towards marginalized communities, and I wanted to state that myself and the Teach Like a Champion movement are unequivocally opposed to these statements. So I have to say, did Doug Lamov say that? Yes, did he say I that? I will say that that is fiction. I, I bet he has not distanced himself from that. You got it. That's a, you got two out of three because you there better is. believe Doug Lamov, um, 
is constantly referenced by Tom Bennett and his followers. In fact, if you were to just like Twitter, like hashtag research ed and then Doug Lamob or Lamob, you'll find it constantly. They talk about it all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's never said a word about any of this stuff. Uh, he, in fact, has referenced research ed other times now. Um, and it's likely, uh, because he keeps talking about Teach Like a Champion 3.0, that uh, he will utilize a lot of that exact same research and questionable uh, content to back up his practices that he talks about. Right. And, so, and I got I got blocked by Tom Bennett uh, a year or so ago because of that exact reason. I, I asked him, I said, why is the hashtag research ed founder Tom Bennett so concerned with competing sociological and biological definitions of gender? And he promptly blocked me for the exact same things that Benjamin Dockstadter was uh, was writing about. They they they're very anti-trans um, uh, and, and have uh, yeah very, very problematic ties to. Uh, to those kinds of movements and ideas. I mean, it's it's like legit racism and transphobia. Like it's yes. not even like a pseudo, like talking about like structural, like anything. It's just like flat out um, the conservative commentator. She wrote about like uh, pumpkins as genders. Yes. Uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Catherine Burblesing. She goes yeah. by Miss Snuffy. Yeah, she had, yes. she had tweeted this joke, said this is the best joke of the year. And it showed a picture of a basketball and on the basketball written in Sharpie, it says, like, I identify as a pumpkin. Yeah. And right. The, to which my response was, what's the joke? Right. Yeah. Somebody please explain the joke. Oh, yeah. the, the the joke is supposed to be the right. That that trans people are, are the butt of the joke because they only have one joke. Right. Yeah. That's that's the only joke. that those And folks have. it's interesting that all of their work, um, like just to read a few of the articles recently published by the Chalkboard Review, uh, which are also heavily based inside of this research ed community because it's almost like again that research is just connected to some like hyper authoritarian anti uh, like almost uh, not anti uh, purely like white supremacist lens so mm -hmm. uh published on november 3rd report wokeness comes for math in seattle 11 1 inclusive education isn't working 10 28 of course crt is in schools 10 31 antidote to activist teaching 10, 10 23 from salesperson to school board member Ten twenty four vocational training for the soul bringing the meaning of work to schools so like th there is a obvious timeline from uh, eugenics uh th these like hyper white hyper like privileged takes on education back in the, the 1920s and excluding people who are different and that uh, people that are educated look a certain way because they're civilized and even like getting into like white man's burden, that kind of stuff. There's a direct line from that to tailorism and industrializing schools through uh, the, the various different culture wars over the years to today, um, right. where you have publications like this and folks that are using lab-based science, which is not based out of a classroom and ignores a sizable amount of research because they pick and choose. They always go like, well, if anyone could show me research that says otherwise, I would go ahead and go along with it. And then promptly ignore all research that goes against what they're saying. Um, and then basically publish everything that's all based around like culture war nonsense. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all based around like, like anti-masking. Uh, they, they, their big thing now is um, teachers that are getting fired uh, or let go because they refuse to get vaccinated or refuse to wear a mask or something like that. Um, right. As opposed to just looking at basic research. 
Um, and honestly, I think it's all just in the interest of making money. It's all just about right. like, how quickly can I get fired and then go on Fox News and make a lot of money like a like a Dave Rubin or something? The grift is real. Yeah, they, they certainly have weaponized, you know, hashtag Cogsai um, for for the culture war, certainly. Right. Because they'll say, oh, you know, the teachers don't want to teach uh, uh, reading, writing and arithmetic. They want to teach about gender identity as though. Right. You, you can't also learn to read and then how to, you know, understand uh, gender identity like those are competing ideas. There's not enough room in the child's brain to yeah. to learn about uh, <laughs> learn about more than three things. Uh, yeah, we have to balance their cognitive load. It's a moral panic. You know, they want to treat child's brains as a as this moral panic. So. All right. Are you ready for for my take? I was going to say there, there's one more thing about Cogside that I briefly want to mention, which is OK, like. I think it's worth reaffirming the fact that B.F. Skinner and these ideas have already been discredited. Like if you mm. read the research on this stuff, they are trying to defend ideas that are 50 years old while simultaneously saying that the research supports the work that they're doing. And the place that they draw their research from is almost entirely economists. It's about mm. how do you operate a business effectively and how do you make as much money as possible, which in businesses, there are winners and losers. And a lot of this research is like, well, if someone, you know, sucks at their job, you need to let them go. There's a lot of noise. Kahneman writes about, uh, he has a book called Noise, which is about like two people mm -hmm. doing the same job and how you need to get rid of some person who's like not doing the same thing. Very uh, like neoliberal style, uh, like cutting down on uh, businesses, et cetera, uh, or just positions that don't matter. And it just so happens that a lot of these charter schools are run based off of entrepreneurial style um, leadership models. So what does right. that mean if you build classrooms that double down on competition and ranking winnings, winners and losers and getting rid of people who don't conform or forcing them to conform, as opposed to treating classrooms as public community spaces that are not businesses? That's the reason mm -hmm. why it's education and not a job. It's not meant to be a business. Um, I, I think it's so important for folks to tease that out and, and look at these different initiatives and think about you know, is this a business endeavor or is this a classroom? Because they are very different. So let's see. So the number to beat is, is uh, two out of three. So you gotta you gotta do a clean sweep on me here in order to get it. One thing we might have to plan for in the future is a tiebreaker question. That's true. Um, so we'll just kind of see. I, I can start one. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that it could be. I, I might get you with one of these, and a couple of the other ones you might you might uh, knock out of the park. So, right. so mine actually involve. Um, I was kind of inspired by. Uh, David Buck's ungrading camp, um, something to check out on his on his account in particular. But um, he's been running a Discord and hosting some some events in the Twitter Spaces um, for people to talk about ungrading strategies, impacts on um, equity, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, great topics. Um, so it's something to check out there. But I was kind of inspired since our topic is right research ed, CogSci, etc. Because Grading is really just one of the most central conventions in formal education. We, we just do it uh, without any sense of, mm -hmm. of the reason for why. So even in our modern so-called research-based data-driven world, we stick with traditional grading schemes or the compromised standards referenced or standards-based methods that Alfie Cohn would call lipstick on a pig. Even as we study and understand more about the consequences of grades and grading on many of the unmeasured outcomes of school. So so my three questions today deal with some of the recent research on the impact of grading on three things, on group problem solving, group coordination, and confirmation bias. Gotcha. So I'm going to walk you through some methods here real quick, and then I'll get to the, get to the question. <laughs> 
So in a 2015 study, European researchers were looking to evaluate, quote, what happens when educators and managers want to promote cooperation because of its potential for innovation in a system that consistently and pervasively assesses group work with individual normative grades. The task, as explained to participants, was to study, quote, how people who work in teams get to solve criminal cases. Hmm. The participants were it provided information about a traffic accident and had to collectively determine who was responsible for the accident among numerous suspects. So the crux of the experiment here was that participants were each given 21 pieces of shared information and six pieces of unshared information, making pooling the unshared information vital to crack the case and nab the correct suspect. Does that make sense? So does the does one group then have all the information or do different groups have that different information? Um, so so uh, each participant was given that amount of information. Okay. So you had 27 pieces of information total, six were unshared, and 21 were in common. So you had right. to figure out which ones you had in common and which ones were right. unique Within to you. your own group. Within your group, yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. So um, in th they wanted to look at these three different conditions uh, to kind of assess the impact of these things on there. So um, the different uh, groups that they ran through this were in first a graded and visible condition where the teams were told, quote, although I'm interested in your team product, I will observe your work and at the end also give each one of you a grade uh, from one to six as a function of each one's contribution to the investigation. Another one was a non-graded visible condition in which teams were told the experimenter was only interested in the group solution, but that individual contributions would not be assessed. And then a non-graded, non-visible condition where the teams were told the experimenters were only interested in the group solution and explicitly pointed out that the, the cameras would be off um, so nobody would be observing them either. So here's the fact or fiction. As a result of this work, the researchers concluded that visibility itself has no deleterious effects and that it is the use of grades that hampers cooperative group work. Hmm. Well, I'll walk, I'll walk through my thought process a little bit here. Okay. So I know for a fact that, well, not for a fact, but I know based off of research that I've read in the past that cooperative learning is hampered by assigning grades. I know that if you individually grade different students based off of working cooperatively, they tend to contribute less. There's multiple research on our website that shows that when you grade, people tend to share less information, even though they're being individually graded for it, which is very interesting. Mm. Um, so I want to say that for sure, the grades would not help. Um, however, the question about visibility is is interesting. Mm. Um, I that's not my answer. I want to think that visibility does matter because you feel like you're being watched and therefore you might feel less prone um, to like to like saying things you wouldn't normally say. Um, but okay. the exact same time, there there is potentially a motivating factor to being observed um, in the sense that like, I know I'm being watched, so therefore I want to make sure I'm doing well. But based off of the grading component, I feel like it's, it's relatively similar, like the idea of being watched, the ideas of being judged, et cetera. So I'm going to say, right. um, I, I think this is the, the false is as in that it, it, it did matter as in you shouldn't have, as in the last, the last category was the better category, not watching people, not grading them. Okay. So, um, 
So let's see here. So you would agree with the statement, quote, visibility itself has no deleterious effects and that it's the use of grades that hampers cooperative group work. You think that's a fact? Yeah. So visibility does not matter. And like, as in you, you don't want, it doesn't matter if you have visibility or not, but the grades are the problem. All right. Yes. And that is a fact. Nice. Yes. So you nailed that one. Cause I, cause that's where I, I wanted to bring that back to what you had said earlier. Remember I, I had said visibility would come back into this. Mm. Uh, but yeah, they found that visibility was not damaging, but the grades that hampered cooperative group work. In fact, they actually ran a separate experiment designed to eliminate the confounding variables um, based on right visibility or not visibility. And they, they found in the second experiment replicated the same results. Here's what they said. This second study provides supplementary evidence that in a cooperative group situation, grades interfere with the group's cooperative behavior and negatively impact the pooling of the most relevant information, namely unshared information. The results of the two studies are complementary and point to the negative effects of grades in cooperative settings. Mm -hmm. It is the use of grades that hampers cooperative group work. And they conclude, this is a quote, as the expectation of grades may prioritize individual interests and personal success, it is also possible that it induces cheating behaviors, even right. when group members are encouraged to cooperate. With this in mind, we can only recommend to avoid grading individuals in cooperative groups. So yeah, that was the result that of adds 20... up with all the other research. I know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I like that. That was 2015 um, from the Journal of Social Psychology. The, the title was Grading Hampers Cooperative Information Sharing in Group Problem Solving. So right on the notes. Right, we want to talk about yeah. ungrading as an evidence-based practice. Um, how often you know, do teachers grade individuals in group projects? Is that an evidence-based practice? Why are we not responsive to that? So sure. cool. um, now this one's going to come pretty quick because... Okay. Um, the same team of researchers also hypothesized in 2015, and I'll paraphrase, that grades elicit disruptive interactions and reduce performance in cooperative tasks that require group coordination. So what do you think here? Fact or fiction? The researchers found that grades improved group interactions and performance. Well, grades would not, grades would not improve interaction. Okay. Yeah, it would actually, if it encourages you to, to cheat anyway... Then I okay. would imagine that there's no way that it would improve how you interact with each other. Okay. So what about the performance lens? Because maybe it's the case that being graded can actually help your uh, your performance. What that, do you think would be, that would be very interesting if they found that given that in the past they've done studies that show that the product that students produce as a result of being ungraded tends to be better. Um, and they tend not to try as hard on assignments that are graded. So I would say that that's also fiction. All right. And you got it. That is fiction. Nice. Yeah. I, I got I got these. I could do ungrading uh, things. The, the last week was um, uh, whatever they're called. Teach for America. Uh, yes. That's a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. I can do this. That I was think. pretty good. Mm -hmm. So so the title of that paper they released um, about that, that study is called Grades Degrade Group Coordination. And the mm -hmm. researchers found, quote, that although pupils were set to work cooperatively, priming grades versus neutral concepts harmed inter-individual coordination by eliciting more negative dominant behaviors among pupils, which decreased group performance. So that competitive environment that that was prompted by the grades actually led to um, behaviors that decreased um, coordination and then subsequently decreased performance. So there's kind of a chain of causation there. So it was a really ex interesting experimental design. Um, maybe I'll even have to send you a picture of it or something. But they had fifth graders use a paper track and a pulley system that drove a ballpoint pen in a line around the track. 
So the pen was in the middle and there were ropes that went or lines that went to the different pulleys. And so if I pulled my version of the pulley, well, that would move yours as well. And we would have to coordinate our interactions to be able to drive the pen, quote unquote, around this paper track. You see what okay. I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. And, and you would get a point for each square that you were able to keep the pen in the middle lane. So the, you know, the mm -hmm. groups were able to keep it in the middle and better coordinate, got higher scores. Zero points if it went to an outer lane, you, you know, you didn't get punished by it. But you'd got minus one point for going outside the track entirely. Okay. So the way that Sounds they control like this, fun, actually. Yeah. yeah, is yeah. one group was primed to consider a label on the track track in the center that had just unit conversions. So one meter into millimeters, kilometers, and so on. And another group was primed to a grading scale. So the Swiss equivalent in this case of an A, B, C, D, or F scale. Okay. And they concluded that, quote, priming the pupils with grades in comparison to neutral priming resulted in tenser relations during the game, more floor-taking control and intrusive behaviors to direct others. And additionally, they found priming the pupil with grades from the outset of the game indeed resulted in lower group performance that they attribute to the increase in negative dominant behaviors. So, yeah. you know, that scoring system, they actually performed worse due to the lack of uh, cooperation in that case. Yeah, they're, they're stressed. I just imagine yeah. if I put some of my kids together in a room and said, if you don't do this, you're going to fail. Like yeah. chaos would ensue. Right. Uh, like, it just it doesn't work because that's not in the a, purpose in a, of In a cooperative environment, right? Like one kid starts doing it all for themselves and then you know that breaks up the 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 cooperative sort of nature and then mm -hmm. some kids drop out or whatever the 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 research behind that was pretty fascinating because the way that they measured the negative behaviors was yeah. like in qualitative ways so they have examples of things that the kids would say yeah. <laughs> like when they would complain about others behaviors or uh or some of the other things too so it was it was pretty um it was kind of funny to read like they put uh, one participant telling another, pull the pulley, exclamation point, while simultaneously dropping his or her own pulley in order to mime the action, or verbal interventions with tones of emotional negative tension, i.e. annoyed and scornful tones, e.g. arg, no, <laughs> not that way, and are you stupid or what? Oh, my. <laughs> Those were things yeah. that the students had said to themselves that they coded as negative. Well, um, I'm just happy I can't get something out of the airlock now. Yeah, that's true. Player. It's a tie. Yeah. So right. yeah, we'll go. <laughs> it's like the thing, right? Now we got to figure <laughs> out who it is. Um, so let's see here. So the last one. So now we've seen how grades negatively impact group problem solving and information sharing, as well as increase dominant intrusive behaviors that negatively impact group performance. Let's talk about the phenomenon of the preference effect, or more commonly known as confirmation bias. All right. So that's the tendency to seek out evidence that confirms your initial preferences. So um, kind of the question here in just a second uh, will be kind of in which direction do you believe that grades and grading will have an impact on this bias? So essentially, this will be kind of a test of your own confirmation bias, Chris, but okay. it might come with a twist. So all be right. careful. Okay. So in a 2014 study, and I liked all of these because they're all within the last 10 years, Researchers studying the notion of grades and confirmation bias, again, divided participants into three conditions, a graded visible condition in which participants were individually evaluated by an authority on a range of one to six, but in front of the group. So everybody knew what grades everyone was getting a non-graded visible condition where there was the presence of an authority to oversee the work, but not an evaluation. And then the last one was a non-graded, non-visible condition in which no authority was present during the experiment and participants were not graded. So the last two conditions are both non-graded, but the mm -hmm. difference is visibility. Gotcha. Okay. So fact or fiction. The researchers found that the bias for confirming evidence 
confirmation bias was higher in the non-graded, non-visible group than the non-graded visible group. So what wait, what is what is the bias that they're that they're concerned with? Okay, so basically um, the amount of information that they used that confirmed their previous hypothesis as opposed to including disconfirming information. Wait, what is the task? Like what are they actually doing? Um gosh, I was hoping that it wouldn't it, it wouldn't <laughs> I was hoping that it wouldn't matter. So you're saying like they're like, they're working matter. on some kind of like project, some kind of problem. And right. the question is whether or not the group had more confirmation bias or not when gathering evidence for that, that product in a ungraded environment versus a graded environment. Well, in this one, both of the conditions that I said are not graded. Okay. So now this gets to visibility. So did they find that Con however they measure confirmation bias, right, mm -hmm. like in percentage or raw figures or whatever, was they found more confirmation bias present in the non-graded, non-visible group. So the ones which no authority was present during the experiment and participants were not graded. Yep. Then in the non-graded, visible group. So that would be the one in which there was a presence of an authority, but not an evaluation. And that clear as day, uh, that, <laughs> how, how, how that sounds. So there's two sides of this that I'm like trying to fight. Okay. One side is I feel, I I feel like my own bias would say that by having an authoritative figure there, that you would be less likely to have confirmation bias because you'd want to ensure the person who's an authority uh, knows that like you're thinking about different things and you're you're working with different perspectives. Mm. However, um, the other side of me also thinks about the fact that typically when you have people that are judging you, you tend to um, jump to conclusions faster because you want to find the right answer. Mm -hmm. uh, and you you like want to hurry up and get to the end. So I could, I could see an argument for both sides. Um, I'm going to go with the fact that having visibility, as in having an authoritative figure, makes you more likely to have confirmation bias because you want to like, you want to get the answer correct for that person. Okay. Now that's interesting. So yeah. um, I will tell you that... Um, this is, uh, I think you had framed it in a way that would make what I had said fiction, right? So if we're talking about the researchers found that the bias for confirming evidence, the confirmation bias was yep. higher in the non-graded, non-visible group than in the non-graded, visible group. And okay. that is a fact. So they did have more confirmation bias when they were not visible. Correct. And I think that might be the opposite of what you said. <laughs> that is the opposite of what I said. Okay. Yeah, it's going to make for now, great podcast content. It really is. Okay. And I'm going to put this up on the thing here. Can you see that V right there? Yeah. That middle group in the, this, again, uh, a visual prop for an audio podcast. Yep. Is there is great. a V going down that basically like one group is really high, one group is really low, and the other group is like halfway. Yes. So the group in the middle is the non-graded but visible group. They had the lowest... Um, uh, 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 preference uh, bias or confirmation bias compared to the graded visible group, which had the highest amount of confirming, you know, evidence. Um, and the non-graded, non-visible group was that is that third one that you can kind of see. They had almost as much as the uh, as the other group. Now, I thought this was fascinating. Okay, um, so they found that the graded visible participants showed a far higher preference for confirming evidence than either of the non-graded groups. The paper I'm quoting from is called. 
uh, grading reduces consideration of disconfirming evidence. So they did discuss what they called, quote, an interesting, although unexpected result was that the preference effect was higher in the non-graded, non-visible condition compared to the non-graded, visible condition for the exact reasons that you had mentioned, Chris. So I thought maybe that's what you were going to go with here. So they said, this may suggest that when one's work is not expected to be visible, individuals are not particularly motivated to revise their preferences. This mm-hmm. is consistent with research on social loafing, which I had not heard of before, showing that people reduce their individual contributions to group work when their effort is not visible, which I found mm-hmm. fascinating, right? And kind of shows... Um, a, a lot of what we've talked about, which is, you know, making that work authentic and public facing and for an audience, be it for peers or for an Internet audience or for parents or someone else, um, right, kind of kind of uh, uh, triggers in kids sort of that that need to um, that need to perform the task. Right. Um, so that way, you know, they the, kind of that social pressure factor of it here, too. Um, and the people who in the non-graded, non-visible group just didn't, you know, they were just like, yeah, kind of whatever um, huh. about that thing. So, oh, so, so I thought close. that was really interesting. I was on the right track yeah. and I, I psyched myself I know, myself and then out. you flipped it. That's why I, I had to ask about it. Oh, but yeah, but, oh. but even the non-graded, <laughs> the not graded, but the yeah. visible, right? So the visibility, right, improved a kind of thought process that we would want students to participate in, which is, right, let's seek out disconfirming evidence for the things that we think. And then we'll, you know, put thesis, antithesis, and we'll come to, to better conclusions about that. But the graded um, visible condition just caused kids to look for evidence of things that they already think and believe. So that creates, again, the kind of wrong kind of critical thinking that we would want kids to be able to engage with, which is why I thought for as confusing as the study is, I thought it was really important to think about um, in terms of um, creating the kinds of thinkers and creating the kinds of kids that, that we want, you know, is, right. is, yeah. Well, let's do this really quick. Actual, actual lightning round. All right, real quick tiebreaker question. All right. All right. I already got the tiebreaker question. I was thinking about it in that, that explanation. (laughs) Uh, so, uh, here's the lightning round question. It's going to be an A, B, C, or D question. If you get this right, I'll get sent out. If I, if you get it wrong, you're getting sent out. Okay. So here's the question. I'm going to call back. I'm going to tie this all back to some BF Skinner behaviorism. So all of the studies that are referenced by behaviorist cognitive science people are almost entirely taking place in a lab, whereas all of the research that we just cited here for on grading are taking place in classrooms, as in we're taking groups of students who are working together, actual human beings. Uh, They might be in a lab-like setting, but they are Mm -hmm. still like actual people. Whereas the vast majority of behaviorist studies feature like animals or like individuals like seated in a room by themselves. It's not, Hmm. it's meant to be hyper-controlled. So you, hopefully you don't know this, uh, but you, you might already know it. So, you know, Pavlov was famous, a famous kind of like precursor to behaviorism for Pavlov's bell, you know, the, the dog would be the, the, you know, the dog would ring the bell and it would get something and it would salivate. Right. What animal was B.F. Skinner famous for using in practically all of his experiments. In fact, they wrote about it all the time in like Science Weekly. Uh, he was known at Harvard for keeping a bunch of these animals uh, for all of his studies. God, you know the answer already. Uh, I, believe, the- I believe the answer is uh, pigeons. The answer is pigeons. Oh, my. Yeah. Wait. All right. I'm the executive director now. No. Oh. <laughs> It'll be even better than last time. 
you knew the answer before I could even do it. I didn't even give you the ABCD. But you know, I had a th- I had a thought because I was thinking of those those uh, little Albert experiments. Do you remember hearing about those? Didn't they make a child deathly afraid of this mouse or a rat or something like this? I have no idea. What? Okay. Well, maybe I won't even say anything about that. Um, yeah, the little Albert experiment, uh, a controlled experiment showing empirical evidence of classical conditioning in humans. Uh, yeah. So, I, I I believe that was no. Who was that? Uh, oh, John Watson. I got you. Okay. But yeah, they yeah. made, they made a, they made a little boy terrified of a, of a mouse. Uh, and it's, it's very difficult to watch. Uh, Fascinating. Yeah. Wait, one more BF Skinner question. Bonus follow-up question for you to come back inside the airlock. Do you know what, yeah, I'm knocking for air right now. Do you know what was the most famous experiment that BF Skinner did with his pigeons? Oh, it deals with uh, World War Two in the Cold War with his pigeons. Yeah, well, I know that he had them. They hit a they hit a little lever, mm-hmm. right? They could like peck the thing, and then yep. and then some food would come out. Yeah, I don't know what task. What they were they were training to... to do though? Like, what made that research oh. so public? Because yes, they did hit the lever, and they did get a piece of food for it. But what was the purpose of that? What were they oh. training them to do? Yes, no, no, no. Um. Shoot. You know what? I don't I don't remember. I don't know. What is it? You All can right, come back in. We're, I'm coming back in. All right. So this is another true BS Skinner fact. Despite being like a kind of a terrible person when you think about his legacy, the guy is hyper interesting. So he was on a project called Project Orcon, which is also known as Project Pigeon, which the goal of this was to create pigeon-guided missiles where pigeons would carry missiles with their with their feet uh with their claws um and they were trained to carry these missiles and then peck to get the food like the reason why they were doing the behaviorist like pecking for the food the idea would be like they would dive bomb uh using a missile and just like blow people up or buildings up or whatever oh Um, my god i know how dark and weird is that it the, the project never got approved by the military but it was funded by the military uh so like they really did do this um, just never was like actually used in combat. My God, if that's not a commentary on the use of behaviorist uh, techniques in the classroom, I, I don't, I don't really know what else to say. <laughs> like it speaks for itself. <laughs> wild. Absolutely oh, wild. using classical yeah. conditioning, we can get people to want to blow each other up. Yeah, right. it's like, hey, and using classical conditioning, we can make everybody hyper patriotic, and they never question what their country does, and yeah. everyone will just get along because everyone will be the exact same. And then they'll carry bombs and go blow up people in other countries. Great. There you go. Isn't it? Yep. And then they'll get a little treat at the end to, we did for, for their hard work. Problem solved. With that, that's, a- that's the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So again, thank you. If you've, if you've gone on this long, I so apologize. Um, it, yeah. If you, <laughs> the goal is to make this podcast five hours long by the time we're done doing them. Yep, exactly. Yeah. It'll just be a full day. You'll, it'll be like the Lord of the Rings extended edition at some point, but uh, my goodness. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, you know, f- feel free to share it. Send us Q&A if you thought that that was I, I enjoyed answering those questions. So if you like that, send us more questions. We can tackle those in future episodes. Um, yeah. Follow us at Humores Pro. I'm at Covington EDU. And I'm at McNuttEDU. Nice. We corner the market on the EDUs. Yeah. Uh, yeah and um, hopefully we can, you know, we'll do this again. And together we can restore humanity together. 
Nailed it. Thank you again for listening to Human Restoration Projects Podcast. I hope this conversation leaves you inspired and ready to push the progressive envelope of education. You can learn more about progressive education, support our cause, and stay tuned to this podcast and other updates on our website at humanrestorationproject.org. Thank you.